Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our desire at Grace Bible Fellowship is to proclaim the Word of God for the glory of God. At the center of our proclamation is the one who is Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. We base who we are and what we do upon the good news of Jesus. If you would like to know more about this good news or would like to know more about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. That's www.gbfperu.org. I'm glad you've decided to listen to the teaching of the Bible along with us as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I should invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 9. In a moment we'll be reading beginning in verse 13 through the end of chapter 10. If you're using the Pew Bible there in front of you, it will be on page 558 this morning. You can follow along with us in one moment. Our study through the book of Ecclesiastes has taught us many things so far. And as I thought about our journey through the book of Ecclesiastes up to this point, it made me think of a house of mirrors. As those, as human beings, we want to know the meaning of life. We want to know why we're here. We want to know what our purpose is. We want to know what it all means. Where is it all going? And Solomon has methodically and strategically been showing us various things. Here, take a look at pleasure. It's not the answer. Here, take a look at riches and wealth. It's not the answer. Here, take a a look at wisdom. It's not the answer. Here, take a look at death. It's not the answer. And now, Solomon gets to what might be the most difficult test in the book of Ecclesiastes. Because now, Solomon takes the mirror and puts it in front of us and says, Here, take a look at yourself. You are not the answer. That's not what we like to hear. Because we think, maybe there's something in me. Maybe there's something that I can do to give the answer to the meaning of life. Maybe there's something that I can do to put all the pieces of the puzzle together to make sense out of it. And Solomon says, no, you are not sufficient to do that. So let's read here, Ecclesiastes chapter 9, beginning in verse 13. If you would stand with me again as we read God's word. After I get through the end of chapter 10, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. And together, because we are thankful for God's word, we'll say, thanks be to God. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it. And a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. 
Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were, an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win in favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him. The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility, and your princes feast at the proper time, for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth the roof sinks in, and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything, even in your thoughts. Do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, and some winged creature tell the matter. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. to the one who walks among the seven lampstands, who walks among this church, your lampstand. Give us ears to hear, O Lord, what your Spirit says to this church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We know that certain things in life that are small, seemingly insignificant, and yet those small things can sometimes have so much power, can create such an impact. Just a little yeast spreads throughout the whole loaf of bread and causes it to rise. Just a a little bit of oil from that Carolina Reaper pepper will spread throughout the whole food and make it spicy. Just a little tiny rock in your shoe causes great pain and hardship. Things that are so small, things that are insignificant, but they pack a powerful punch. They are so powerful that you can't ignore them. And it's a power that you cannot underestimate. But there is a power, I think, sometimes that we often underestimate. It's a power that you might think and I might think that we can overcome, that we can overpower, a power that comes from something that you would say is so small, it's insignificant. And if it stays small, and if it stays insignificant, then it won't make much difference in my life. But the power behind this, even a little bit, 
of this in your life has great consequences in your life. And it's the power or the force of folly and foolishness. And it only takes a little bit. A little bit of folly, a little bit of foolishness for you to find out just how powerful it is in your life. Ecclesiastes has been telling us both the wise person and the foolish person die. Solomon has been telling us that wisdom has limitations. Wisdom is not the answer to all of life's questions. It does not clear away the fog of mystery that surrounds the meaning of life. And while wisdom is not everything, while wisdom is not ultimate, while we cannot and should not depend upon our wisdom to save us, we need to know the truth about the other side of life. We need to know the truth about folly and foolishness. Solomon says that he tried everything in life's spectrum. He set his mind, applied his heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. That's the whole spectrum of life. Solomon said, I set out to apply my heart to know one end to the other, to know everything. And then he said, I perceive that this also is but striving after the wind. It got me nowhere. It's as useless as if I went out and tried to catch some wind. All of that searching, he had not gotten to the bottom of the meaning of life, not gotten to life's purpose. None of those answered the big questions that plagued him, but that does not mean that he thought there was no value to wisdom. And he thought we needed to be warned against foolishness and folly. How do you think about foolishness in your life? I think many of us think about it on this sliding scale. If I just do more good, if I just live with more wisdom, if I just try to tip the scale enough so that my wisdom outweighs my folly, then I'm okay. But we know that it doesn't take much foolishness, much folly to ruin someone's life. Yes, wisdom is better than folly, but any folly, any foolishness in our lives poses a problem for us. It's not just good enough for your wisdom to outweigh your foolishness. Our foolishness poses a problem to us because it is more powerful, more forceful than we think. And let me speak to the young people for a moment. Ecclesiastes is a manual for young people, so let me speak to the young people for a moment and say this and say it clearly. Any foolishness, any folly in your life is not good. The world will try to tell you otherwise. This world will tell you that you can be a little bit foolish and that you won't get hurt. The world will tell you that exploring a little bit of foolishness and a little bit of folly is what being a young person is all about. And so it encourages you to pursue a little bit of foolishness. The world tells you to participate in a little bit of folly and it deceives you in saying that it won't hurt you. But don't fall for that lie. They will say a little foolishness, a little folly is good. It's even necessary in your life. But it will destroy you. And parents, don't perpetuate that lie in the lives of your children. Don't buy into what the world says, that these young people just need to go and sow their wild oats. That, well, kids will be kids, and so you just have to let them pursue a little bit of foolishness. The the main problem here is that we see foolishness as folly as something outside of us, 
right? That foolishness and folly is out there and it's somehow going to attack us and it's going to get us. The problem is, is that foolishness is not primarily outside of us. The problem is that foolishness and folly is primarily inside of us. Proverbs 22.15 says this, folly is bound up in the heart of a child. It's there. You don't have to go out into the world to get foolishness because foolishness is already in kids. Foolishness is already even in us. And the Bible doesn't say, let fools be fools. There's a reason for that. Because if fools stay fools, fools be damned. That's why the force of foolishness is so dangerous. That Solomon needs to warn us and tell us to fight against that force, to resist it. Not to give ourselves over to it, not to succumb to it. Not just to make sure that our wisdom outweighs our folly by a little bit, but to see that even a little bit of folly is a problem in our lives. These verses, again, say some quite difficult things for us. And what's difficult about these verses in particular is that some theologians even say, well, these are just some miscellaneous verses that are just kind of thrown together. I always find that difficult because I think there's a reason why Solomon wrote these the way that he wrote them. He wrote them in this way, this order, for a reason. I don't think he was just like, well, I have some miscellaneous thoughts. Let me just write those down. <laughs> don't think that's the way the Holy Spirit works. There's a reason why he wrote these words, and I think the reason behind it is to confront us with the foolishness that resides in our hearts. And that's not what we like to see when we look in the mirror, is it? We don't want to see that folly in our own hearts. So, what do we need to know if we're going to fight against the force of foolishness? There's four things I want us to look at, but we're not going to get to all four today. <laughs> we'll get through the first two, and Lord willing, next week we'll get through the second two. But number one this morning, you can follow along there in your bulletin if that is helpful. A lone sinner will destroy much good. A lone sinner will destroy much good. Solomon begins our text with an example. Example that's to be followed. An example that's to be imitated. It is an example of wisdom. Wisdom under the sun that is wisdom in this fallen and cursed world world, and Solomon exalts this example by saying it's, it's a great example. And then he gives this vignette, a little city, few men in it, small city, insignificant, nothing impressive about it. It's not that big, it doesn't have that many people, but what, what happens? great king, impressive king, powerful king, comes with it, with all of his weapons, with all of his military might, with all of his great siege works that will flatten this city. And this king comes to attack and raise this city. There's no way that this city stands a chance. It can't match the military might of this great king. But what happens? There's one man in the city. How is this man described? Well, he's a poor man first, isn't he? Didn't have status, didn't have wealth, didn't have honor in the city. No one was coming to this man. Remember in his song, in The Fiddler on the Roof, Tevye says, If I were a rich man, people would come to me to hear my wisdom like Solomon the Wise. No man's going to the poor man to ask him for any advice. 
In fact, there are probably so many, uh, so few people in the city that this man is on the bottom rung of society, if not at the very bottom. He was poor, but he was wise. And even though he had no status, and even though he had no money, and even though he himself was unimpressive, his wisdom saves the day. It's by his wisdom that the city is delivered from the hand of the great king who was about to level the city. What a great triumph. This man delivered the city by his wisdom. What should happen? Let's hoist up the man on our shoulders. Let's parade him around the city. Let's tell everybody how great he is for what he's done and how he delivered the city. But what happened? No one remembered him. He was forgotten. His wisdom couldn't even elevate him. And how many of us might think our wisdom would elevate us? Well, it would make us at least look good in the world. Our wisdom will somehow get us ahead. Wisdom will solve problems That man's wisdom, the wisdom by which he did something great, the wisdom by which he delivered a city, ultimately did not solve his problems. He was left in that low estate. But still, even though this man's wisdom didn't make him prominent, wisdom is still better. Solomon says, wisdom is better than might. The little city couldn't meet the great king with equal amount of might, with equal amount of physical strength, but it wasn't needed. Wisdom is better than any strength that man can muster on his own. Even though wisdom is better than might, the poor man's wisdom could still be despised and rejected and not heard. It could still not be perceived by the world as beneficial. Why is this? Because true wisdom stems from faith in God. Look at those things that Solomon says that wisdom is better than. Wisdom is better than might, better than the shouting of a ruler among fools, better than weapons of war. All these things look impressive to our eyes. All of these things appeal to our flesh. They all look and sound important, and we think that these things will be effective. But Solomon says, don't trust these things. Solomon does say, wisdom is more valuable than all of these things But then he says wisdom is also very vulnerable. Don't miss wisdom's value. But be on guard because wisdom is vulnerable. And Solomon has been building up and building up and building up wisdom. And then with half a sentence, he just destroys everything that he says, right? Because then he says this. But one sinner destroys much good. One poor, wise person had overcome the worst odds imaginable. Isn't that great? But one sinner destroys much good. All of that wisdom can be undone and easily undone by a little bit of evil. With the sinner comes destruction. And it hits close to Solomon's heart. Because here was Solomon, the wisest king. The king who ushered in the golden age of Israel. The king where rulers from foreign lands would come to him and marvel at his wealth and at his greatness and at his wisdom. The time and place when Israel's borders had been expanded to their furthest reaches that they would ever know. Where Solomon himself had built the grand temple where all of Israel would come to worship God. But what happened? Solomon's son, Rehoboam. Rehoboam decided not to listen to the advice of his father's advisors, but to listen to his own friends. And the kingdom, the great kingdom Solomon had ruled, was torn in two. One lone sinner, one person 
caused so much that was good to quickly be destroyed. This lesson hits home to Solomon's family. And this actually is a theme throughout the whole Bible, isn't it? God, in his infinite wisdom, created all things. He created everything good. Not just good, but very good. But what did it take to destroy and twist and mar what he had created as good? It took one lone, solitary sinner. It only took Adam. And how quickly all that was good and right and true and perfect in the world was destroyed, was absolutely ruined. Why? Because of one man's sin. This is what Paul says in Romans 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, one man's trespass led to condemnation for all men. It was one man's sin that started it all. And that's why you and I are sinners today, because we are in Adam. All men sin. Everyone sins because they are in Adam. When you look at these verses in Ecclesiastes, you want to pick out a hero, right? And we want to identify ourselves with that hero. When you look in these verses, who do you want to be? I'm the poor wise man. That's me. No one listens to me. No one hears all the wisdom that comes from my life. No one remembers me. No one gives me the recognition that I deserve for all that I have done. But I am the hero. No, you're not. You're the lone sinner. And it's your sin that has absolutely ruined your life. So much that was good been destroyed. And it's your sin that keeps you from the sole one who is good. Your sin keeps you from God himself. And we have no one to blame but ourselves. We can't blame Adam because we're still responsible for our own sin. And so what What do you need? What do I need? How can we read these verses of the poor man, the poor wise man who delivered the city and not draw our minds to the great deliverer? How could we think about the depths of our own sinfulness without crying out, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Is it because we are slow to remember? Is it because we are guilty of forgetfulness? Here is the one who is the great deliverer of whom it said in Isaiah 53, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as from one whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. But Jesus Christ who came as the embodiment of true wisdom from above. It was he who fulfilled God's wise plan of redemption that he had planned before the foundations of the world. It was Jesus Christ who brought about the greatest deliverance that we could ever imagine, a deliverance that was against all odds, a deliverance that we thought there's no way it's ever going to happen, a deliverance that no amount of man's might No amount of shouting, no amount of military weapons could ever accomplish. And here is how this deliverance is described in God's word. Colossians 1, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. For those who have trusted in Christ Jesus... The domain of darkness is no longer our home. But we have been transferred 
into a new kingdom, into a better kingdom with a better king, the beloved Son of God, Jesus Christ, who purchased our redemption with his own blood, who saved us by being nailed to a wooden cross and bearing our sin in his body. To the one who knew no sin, he became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. How is this redemption explained in this verse in Colossians? It's explained by saying, we've been forgiven. It's the forgiveness of sin. That is what we need to be delivered from. We need to be delivered from the domain of darkness because of our own sin. The sin that has dominated and controlled us with its power. The sin that has held us captive and enslaved us as a harsh taskmaster. It's the redemption we have in Christ that forgives us all our sin. It's the redemption that brings us to God. It brings us into the very family of God. And yet, how many people are living as if there has been no deliverance? How many people go about their lives with no thought, no remembrance of the great deliverer, Jesus Christ? And how many people continue to destroy the good as they remain in their sin? Or even worse, how many would deny that they need deliverance at all? They're doing all right by themselves. They can make it on their own. They aren't really that bad. They're pretty good, all things considered. But you need a savior. You need a deliverer. You need Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Because without him, you're dead in your trespasses and sin, without God and without hope in this world. Do not forget him. Do not deny him. Do not deny the truth that you need to be delivered from the domain of darkness, the domain of sin and death. If you repent of your sin, put your faith in Christ and the redemption work that he accomplished on the cross and through his resurrection from the dead, then you will know deliverance. Then you might cry out, as Paul does, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He has delivered us from the body of death. Number two. A little foolishness will disclose your way of life. A little foolishness will disclose your way of life. There are some things in life you just can't hide. How many things in your life would you like to hide? Would you like to keep a secret? You'd be mortified if that ever got out. What would people think of you if they knew that? How many times we think to ourselves, this is something small. In my life, I can control it, I can contain it, I can keep it under wraps, but oh, if people really knew the real you. If we try to view wisdom and foolishness on that sliding scale, how many want wisdom to win out, would want wisdom to be 51% of their lives because then they could say that they are wise. Look, my wisdom outweighs my foolishness. I've done more good than bad. But Solomon says, a little foolishness discloses your whole way of life and reveals who you really are. So how does Solomon describe this? Dead flies. It's a nice picture, isn't it? 
Solomon says, I want you to picture flies that have made their way into a bottle of perfume. The sweetness of that perfume attracted them. The perfume was left uncovered and open, and these flies found a way into that perfume, drowned themselves in it, and now their little bodies are floating in that perfume and have caused some kind of fermentation in the perfumed ointment that now gives off a rancid, putrid stench. That which once smelt so good. It was pleasing. It attracted you. It drew you in. It's now become repulsive. Repugnant. Odious. That which repels you. Solomon compares that with a little folly that outweighs wisdom and honor. It only takes a little folly. That's what people will remember. That's what people will smell. You might say, but only 5% of my life was foolishness. I hardly had any folly whatsoever in my life. Surely that should be forgotten. Surely that should be overlooked. Surely that won't have any repercussions on my life. Let me ask you this. Does your life stink? Does your life stink? Do you look at your life and wonder how you've got to this point where there is a rancid smell coming from your life? And you can think that you haven't done much. I haven't said much. What have I done? But oh, how it takes just a few dead flies to ruin everything. A few flies in your life that's created an odious stench. And how many flies are you dropping into the perfume? How many little flies are you dropping into your family? How many flies are you dropping into your relationships? How many little flies are you dropping into your job? How many little flies are you dropping into Christ's church? And how many little flies are you dropping into your own life? But you try to convince yourself otherwise. Who am I? What have I done? You may have done small things, things that you think are inconsequential, that make no difference, but they are dead flies and now there is this putrid rancid aroma stinking up everything in your life where there should have been a sweet beautiful smelling aroma maybe you've thought this my life stinks but it's not my fault you blame others it's all those other people in my life i've not made my life stink it's they who brought this gross smell that's filling up my nostrils no 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 It's not me, it's those other people in my life, not the least of whom maybe sometimes we would even say is God. There are always more people to blame, but what if it's not everybody else? Maybe it's flies that you yourself have put there. Maybe you are the common denominator. Or again, maybe there is an even worse condition. When your life stinks and you don't even know it. My wife and I grew up in a small dairy farming community. With that came a lot of manure. And sometimes the farmers would like to spread that manure in their fields. And one particular visit, we were there. Uh, Christian was a young child at this time, maybe three or four, something like that. We had just been visiting friends. We were leaving their house. We stepped out of their house. And like a good city boy that Christian was at that time, he said, it smells like the zoo. And he was right. 
Some farmer had been spraying their fields and the wind had carried that smell and it smelled bad. When you live there, you somewhat get used to it, might not notice it. What an awful state to be in where your life stinks, where there's an aroma of foolishness that's wafting from your life where everywhere you go and you don't even know it. And again, you say, but it isn't that much. Small flies, little flies, cause the great stench. And it's that little bit of folly in your life that people smell and you can't hide it. The stench is known. It's overpowering. And it's at that moment that there's no doubt who you are. And Solomon gets to the heart of it here. The wise man's heart inclines him to the right. That is, the wise man's heart inclines him to what is good, towards what is true, towards what is upstanding. The right, or the right side, in the eyes of the people, was associated with strength, with blessing, with protection. The fool's heart inclines him to the left. This is the place that has no blessing. It's the place of no protection. That's where Solomon gets now. He says the fundamental problem with the fool is the heart. The fool has got a heart problem. Because the wise man's heart leads him to what is good. The fool's heart leads him to what is not good, towards what is bad. But how often... Do we try to make excuses? We try to explain away the foolishness and folly. How we try to deny that it's actually a heart problem. What do we say? Well, it's an educational problem. If that one was just better educated, things in his life or her life would be better. They were just never taught. Or we could say there is an intellectual problem. They're not just that smart, bless their hearts. They don't know any better. If they were just smarter, they just had some more common sense. Or we say, it's a financial problem. They never had much money. They never had the opportunities to get ahead in life. If they just had a bigger income, if they just had more money, then their life would be different. Then they wouldn't be a fool. But they would have made a difference. What are the excuses given for fools today? But what do we see in the Bible? Fools are fools because their hearts are foolish. And it's put on display for everyone to see. You can't miss it. Isn't that the point of verse 3? Here's the picture. A fool walking down the road, even in the way he walks down the road, he shows that he lacks sense. He puts himself in danger and harm's way. He can't even walk down the road without showing other people that he is a fool. Now, I don't know how many people I've seen walking down the road showing themselves to be a fool, but I know a lot of people who have driven down the roads and been shown to be foolish. But what's Solomon saying here? This is not one instance in someone's life. Solomon's saying this is a reflection of their whole life. This is their way of life. And you walk through life. Everything that they do in their life, it's saying something. It all speaks a word. The way that you can live lets everyone know that you are a fool. And what's more embarrassing, what's more humiliating, what's more demoralizing than this truth? You don't have to walk up to someone and say, Hi, I'm a fool. No, they already know you're a fool. What does the way you live your life say about you? Foolishness and folly go on though, don't they? It says foolishness and folly even in the hand of a ruler. We already know that a shouting ruler is not a good thing, not advantageous. But there's also this ruler who acts foolishly in his anger. And the instruction from Solomon is don't act in the same way. Don't respond in the same way. Don't 
act the fool when you are treated foolishly. Don't leave his presence quickly, but remain calm. That is what will lay great offenses to rest. You're being calm in the midst of that foolish conflict. A soft answer turns away wrath, away wrath but a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverbs 15.1. Finally, Solomon gets to this great evil that he has seen. Error that's proceeding from the ruler. This is the one who's supposed to be leading the people into what is right, into what is true, into what is good. This ruler is supposed to have wisdom when ordering the people. But Solomon's seen the great error of the ruler because everything's been turned upside down. It's all backwards. Folly. The fool is exalted, lifted up, set in many high places, given a position of prominence and prestige, all the while the rich sits in low places. Sometimes when you read the Bible, the rich can be used to have negative connotations. But in this context, Solomon's using it to be a positive thing in the sense that the rich have worked hard, worked faithfully to get where they are. And it's that faithfulness of character, that hard work and patience that is overlooked for the fool who is faithless, untested, untried, self-centered, impatient, wanting to find a way to get around hard work to get to the place of honor. Solomon gives us another picture, doesn't he? He sees slaves on horses. Slaves, again, given this position of prominence. They got to ride on horseback while the princes, the masters, they had to walk on the ground. The roles were reversed. We might think for a second, well, wait, isn't it good if slaves are elevated? Shouldn't they be elevated? I think it helps us to know what Solomon had in mind when he thought of slaves. Slaves would have been those who might have been criminals. So they've broken the law, now they're in slavery. Slaves were those who could be debtors. So they owe something and now they are slaves. Slaves could also be referring to prisoners of war. So foreign people from foreign lands whom they've conquered. And I think if we extrapolate those things out and think about those things for a minute, would we exalt a criminal to a place of adjudicating the law of the land? Would we elevate a debtor, one who can't even control and manage their own houses and their own finances, would we put them in a place of prominence and honor? Would we put a foreigner in a place of honor? Someone who cares nothing for the people, who has no desire for them, who has no ties to them, would we elevate him and put him in that place? There's no good putting a foreigner with other allegiances into a place where he is supposed to care for the people. And all of this shows the foolishness of the ruler. And again, it's not hidden. You see it. It's paraded about even in the land as Solomon describes these things. Foolishness is exalted. And how even today don't we see the same thing? Fools exalted. Foolishness cannot be hidden in your own life. Foolishness cannot be hidden in your own land. Does your life Show you to be a fool? Does it disclose who you really are? So much so that you can't hide it from others. What is it that you need this morning? You need to hear the call of the Holy God. The call of the Holy God who is calling you out of your foolishness. Who is calling you to forsake not just some of the foolishness in your life, but all of the foolishness that is in your life and in your heart. Hear the call of the Holy God who is saying you, here is the truth, walk in it. The call of the Holy God who is calling you to be holy as he is holy. Holy as you fight the desires of sin. He is calling you to be an obedient child. Listen to what 1 Peter 1, 14 and 15 says. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And so what I think Peter is saying, don't be a fool. You were ignorant. You were foolish in the past. Don't be conformed to those passions any longer. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. What does your way of life describe about you? Is it one who treasures Christ? Is it, is it one who is known to be a child of God? Is it holiness? Do you think to yourself as you hear these verses, there is no way that I could do that. 
and you're right. In this life, under the sun, you will never be like God in his deity. But God didn't say that, did he? Did you hear the words? He said, you shall be holy because. You be holy because I'm holy. That's the reason why we pursue holiness, because we serve and we love and we long for a holy God. We have heard his call, a call that has come to us, people who were dead in their trespasses and sin, people who were under the domain of darkness. We have heard the call of the holy God, and so we say, no more foolishness, no more dead flies in my life, no more letting people know that I'm a fool, I'm pursuing holiness and righteousness because God, my God, the God who purchased me, the God who loves me, the God who saves me, he is holy. So will you reflect his holiness in your life? And pursue that holiness because God's word says, without holiness, no one will ever see God. Is that what your way of life discloses about you, or does it proclaim you to be a fool? May our lives proclaim That despite our foolishness, despite our sinfulness, Jesus Christ has delivered us, has forgiven us, has given us a new heart. So now, now we no longer have to live for ourselves, but we live for the one who loved us and gave himself for us so that we can pursue holiness, reflecting the holy God to this world so that he might receive all of the glory from our lives. That's why we fight the force of folly and foolishness in our hearts and in this world. Let's pray. Father, may your word have its effect on us this morning that we might forsake the foolishness, and that we would even see this morning, be convicted this morning of any foolishness in our hearts, any way that we might be deceiving ourselves, any way that we might be trying to minimize our foolishness, downplaying our foolishness, ignoring our foolishness. But may the stench of those dead flies in our life be repugnant to us. And may we say, we don't want that anymore. We want the holy God. We want you. And so that then we would flee those things and pursue you with all that we are. That we might grow. That we might be more conformed to the image of your beloved son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.